Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. Thank you for joining me. This is Donald Jeffries. This is I Protest. Uh, if those of you who used to listen to me on TFR, I say this all the time, we're having uh, we're having flashbacks to those days because I used to have lots of issues with guests. Uh, I had an, a guest from Australia coming on. Maybe he fell asleep. It's probably like three or four in the morning there. I don't know. Uh, but uh, he's not here now. Hopefully he gets my email or wakes up in time and we'll, he'll jump on. If not, uh, I don't have anybody. Uh, Tony uh, may join in if he, he certainly... Uh, Welcome to, and Sony's right there, I see, so jump in, Tony, when you want. Um, let's see, I, I just, uh, I'm finishing up an article on Substack, and I hope everybody subscribes to me there. It's donaldjeffries.substack.com, and uh, I protest just like this show, and in that article, I was uh, combining, I haven't finished it yet, I'm combining um, three elements, as I do sometimes. I, I watched SCTV too much. SCTV used to do that. They would spoof more than one things at once, so if they wanted to spoof uh, two shows at once, they they did the Benny Hill Street Blues, for instance, you know, Benny Hill and Hill Street Blues at the same time. I like doing that kind of stuff. So I'm spoofing uh, Pride Month, Juneteenth, and now this Titanic thing, which is uh, just, I wasn't paying attention to at first, I admit. And, uh, but as I learned some more of these deals, first I learned that one amazingly, one of the wives of the men who were on board was a uh, direct descendant of a famous uh, Titanic couple, is that possible? Yeah, I guess it's, you know, possible, ironic. They're, you know, they're perfect for drama. But then, you know, Tony is, is, is who's here, of course, Tony Arterburn, the, the great uh, Tony Arterburn, military man himself, knows a lot more about military. The closest I came to the military was fleeing to Canada, you know, if I had had to go to Vietnam. But luckily, fortunately, it ended just in time. So Canada was spared, uh, you know, <laughs> the presence of Don Jeffries up there. But, uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't understand how their excuses. And now Tony was saying that they they actually said that uh, they knew about this. It imploded days ago or something. So they just you talk about theatrical. So they just drag this out. And, and I mean, I, I don't I don't understand any of it. None of, and they wonder why people think these things are fake. Just looking at that thing, it looked like something you might find at uh, Animal Kingdom at Disney World or something. I mean, it it, it it did not look like anything that that it just looked like a flotation thing that. How how did that thing possibly go to 13,000 feet on the ocean? And yet they claim the Navy couldn't send a submarine to rescue them because uh, they only go to 10,000 feet. So that thing, that contraption, which looks more laughable than an Apollo spacecraft, that could go deeper than a Navy submarine. I you know Again, I don't understand any of it. And the fact they were all one percenters and the guy, the head of it before uh, issued this ridiculous statement about how he didn't want to hire any white guys in their 50s. I mean, just, uh, I don't know, Tony, what, what's your thing? The, the whole thing just screams, uh, <laughs> it screams fake to me. I'm sorry. I apologize if it's not. Certainly, um, we sympathize with with any loss of life, but I, I, I don't know, man. It just, it just seemed very scripted to me. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is is bizarre. You talk about the relation between what was the one of the wives of one of the passengers on there related yeah. to uh, 
the couple that was on the Titanic. Very strange. Uh, the military supposedly knew that something happened to the sub days ago uh, before they called the, the search off. I thought that was strange as well. But then you talk about the the craft and what it looks like, and it's just way out there, man. I mean, just you, you talk about like the the one percent having discernment to where they're you know somehow super geniuses and they can make all this money, and you think, why would you get on that? boat why would you get on that craft why would you how could you have worked your way up through uh the the gauntlet of raising capital and legal and legality and uh shareholders and everything else that you would need to become a billionaire but you would also have like this no judgment part of your brain that says i'm going to get into that i, I just don't I don't understand that at all that that really makes no sense yeah, no, I mean, I, I just, they wonder why people doubt these things. And now you're telling me I, I need to check that. I, I have to add it to my article. But if they're saying this thing, they were just not telling people that it actually blew up five days ago or something. I mean, so, and all the, I, I see it like in my family and stuff, people that this is the kind of stuff they watch. They'll tune into TV. Oh my God. And it's something for them to talk about, something fits in with the idiocracy, really, because it's not, they won't talk about anything that's really significant. Of course, that's significant to the people. But again, on the surface of it, it's five people that had way too much money, more money than they knew what to do with. They're paying $250,000 for this. And as you noted, if they presumably they, they were intelligent enough to accrue that kind of fortune, how would you risk your life? And just, I mean, I, I just look at the thing and say, well, this it's not even encased in metal. I want it to at least look like a submarine or something. Why am I going to go down? It's like a flotation device. Why, why am I going to go down to the depths of the ocean on this? And, you know, when the, the Navy can't go that, that deep. So, yeah, the whole thing. So they say, yeah. So, well, they here's, say, yeah. Here's a here's a blurb from NPR. Uh, the Navy detected an anomaly consistent with an implosion or explosion in an acoustic data taken from the same area where the Titan went missing. A senior naval official told NPR in a written statement. A second official confirmed to NPR that it had registered that acoustic data on Sunday. <laughs> well, again, I hate to laugh about it, but that's just uh, again, that's uh, somebody ought to be explaining something there. I mean, I, but this will just go away, and pro you know, maybe you'll hear more about uh, the uh, descendant or something. But it's and, and maybe it'll bring a little bit of a uh, discussion about the Titanic up, you know, I was for uh, like the late nineties, I was, my next door neighbor was really into uh, the Titanic. And we actually went to the Baltimore aquarium and met uh, the guy was at Barrett, the guy that, you know, that uh, first discovered the wreck of the Titanic. And um, he was signing copies of his books. And uh, so he was so into it. So he kind of got me into it for all, but I, I had no knowledge of the, what I've since learned, the conspiratorial implications of John Jacob Astor and these people that supposedly right. were opposed to the Federal Reserve dying on it. And now, of course, you have people who have presented, uh, you know, cases, uh, the Miles Mathis types that, it, you know, it never happened. It was an incomplete psyop. So, so they were maybe they were doing they were faking these things, you know, in 1912. So, you know, you don't know what to believe. But so obviously you think that something could maybe be uh on the up and up, but it's certainly, oh, there, I think sure. he's there. Cool. Dying and now, of course, you have people. Oh, Billy Ray. Cool. Okay. There he is. <laughs> I was going to say there's Billy Ray live from Australia. I thought that was my guest. 
No, I, I, um, I, I texted Tony to see if I could jump on, but I knew he wasn't going to see it uh, right away. So I was like, let me just jump in in the back. Well, I got to credit you. You're the, you're the one that were, were you're the one that kind of, because uh, I wasn't paying attention to this, but you're the one that sent me that thing about uh, the descendant of the Titanic. I said, yeah. okay. And then when I heard the Navy can't send, I, what are we paying? This, it's, this the, the military couldn't do anything on 9-11. They couldn't send any fighter jets up. They did nothing at all when the, when the Pentagon was, you know, things were heading for the Pentagon. Here, they can't conduct a rescue uh, on the bottom of the ocean floor. If a Navy submarine can't do it, how can a stupid craft like that possibly get to the bottom of the ocean? You know, don't, the, don't worry, Don. They're going to help with JFK Jr. Remember how they did that? The Navy took over. Yeah, the, they did a good the job surf. on that, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the first, because I, I followed this um, from the beginning, right? I was sitting there looking at it. Actually, my wife told me about it. And the first thing I said is very similar to 9-11, actually, because the first thing I said during 9-11 was who flies a plane into a building? That's literally what I said. Um, so with this, I was like, how do they lose a submarine? Now, I didn't know what type of submarine it was. I didn't know any of that. They were like, a submarine is missing. I'm like, how does a submarine go missing in this day and age? Right? Let it go. I, I Let it go. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching and they're building the narrative. And, and it really upset me because I got emotionally invested, right? And I guess this is what they wanted in, in, in a, to a certain degree. They, they were building the narrative day by day. Okay, all right, they're down there. You know, um, we don't know where they are. They only have 48 hours of air left. Oh, 48 hours of air left. We got it. We got to find them. We got. Oh, yeah. I think your guest is here. I see my guest here. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Steve. Well, I'll pop back on on America Unplugged, but I really want to talk about this at some point. Okay, so. brother. We will. This, this, we this, this is a preview of America Unplugged. Uh, <laughs> Stephen <laughs> Peake, how you doing? I thought you fell asleep in Australia. I know the time. Well, is <laughs> <laughs> well I was, mate. I've just, I've got all the times mixed up. But uh, anyway, we finally. Uh, uh, our good friend Benny uh, rang me up, and I just heard the phone in the office part of my place. So, uh, yeah, well, what, ta what time? What time is it there now? Uh, over here at seven nineteen a.m. Oh my God! Well, I'm I'm sorry to get you up in an ungodly hour. No, like no, no worries. No, I'm I'm ready to go. No worries. I'll uh, wake right. up as I go. Okay. Well, my my guest uh, is Stephen Peake. He's an attorney. Obviously, you can tell from the accent. He's from Australia. Uh, he's been involved a lot since so it looks like I'm looking at your resume. Very impressive. You worked in sports management, including the NFL, soccer and so forth. And he uh, is primarily looks like interested in the JFK assassination. And our friend, uh, Australian Ben, who I saw over in the Rockfin chat room, uh, told me about him and uh, said he had a lot to offer. So, Stephen, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm very happy to be here, Donald. And um, it's, a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a topic that's kept us uh, interested uh, you know since the since the, the incident happened i mean at the time i was eight years of age and i still remember i've still got i believe the the herald sun headline the newspaper from that day mm -hmm. and because ironically i was at um, uh, being looked after by uh, some nurses at that point my mother had been to work and when she got to their place to pick me up or whatever she had the newspaper with her and i've still got that copy from from memory and stories so it was an incident that had a a massive effect on on a lot of people around the world, not just in the USA, but I think there's there's certainly a lot of people around the world that still show a massive interest in in the subject, in the topic, and the effect I think it's had on American society throughout the that whole period of time, leading all the way through to the the present day. I think the ramifications are still there. 
Well, you're you're a, a little you're a little kid in Australia at the time it happened. So, so you're saying it it was a huge story over there, and were people? So this this was obviously a a not, I mean, I I know what it was like in America, but you're saying it was a it was it was a a big story that dominated things uh, in Australia as well. Uh, no doubt about that. In fact, well, the other night I just had dinner with um, a number of uh, other legal uh, friends of mine, include, uh, including a retired a, a retired judge and a retired magistrate and in our system, and still reached discussion then and there. That's only a week ago, and we were still talking about uh, the, uh, the, 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 the assassination and who may have been involved, who was allegedly involved, and how it happened and how it happened that the the motorcade, the route was changed and ended up uh, in Dealey Plaza going on the route to the business centre of, of Dallas and how a um, virtually a military-style hit took place um, uh, on the president uh, going through that particular area. I have actually been at the site once. In 1993, I, was, I took a client of mine to America trying to break into American football who was an Australian rules player and I also had clients in Dallas, Texas. I was doing a computer copyright case for around the world. And I managed to visit them in Richardson, Texas, and then um, told my sports client, I said, there's something I've got to do. And he said, what's that? I said, I've got to go to the assassination site. And uh, went there and he came with me and we had a good look, good look around. There were people there who were part of the um, American societies that involved in still examining the assassination showing people around so it's it's been an issue that's um it's affected the world it's affected the way america has progressed from that period and um it, it's of still of high level interest here in australia well that's interesting so how did when you you were a little kid at the time so when when did you first become interested in researching and what what got your what piqued your interest and at what point was that well there was obviously a lull in that time going through school and and whatever, but then getting to university, I went to Monash University in Melbourne, which is um, uh, a, uh, well, at that point in time, it was still fairly young, but uh, was very well put together by people here and became very, it's very prominent, the people who've been in there, there's been prime ministers and, and, and politicians come out of there and a number of other high profile people. And uh, the student magazine, which was called Lot's Wife at that time in 1973, the first year I was at university, printed a story um, in in that newspaper it was for about 10 pages on the assassination going through the Warren Commission report and the magic bullet theory. Uh, it had all the sketches from the various medical photos and set out the whole situation that this wasn't uh, or didn't appear to be what was presented in the Warren Commission, that there was more to this than, than met the eye and there was a, there was a lot of uh, difficulty um, uh, a lot of assumptions reached uh, by the commission that and a lot of evidence not produced that should have been produced. So uh, that that's what piqued my interest big time. And I always sort of had that feeling at the time that, that something wasn't right about it. And then the Vietnam War was massive at that point in time. We were in the position at that uh, juncture where some of us were 17 years of age and going into our 18th year, in our first year at uh, university doing studying law economics and could have had our names drawn out in the conscription uh, barrel roll, so to speak, that uh, uh, would have taken place if the Whitlam government had won the election in December 72. 
when they won the election, they cancelled conscription and said, that's it, we're, we're aiming towards pulling out of Vietnam from now on. So you were you would have been from Australia. You might have had to go to Vietnam. Yes, I was. I was in the firing line, so to speak, to do conscription. I could have had my name um, uh, drawn out at that point in 1973, early mm-hmm. 73. I started studying law in March 73, and we were worried at that time. My mother said to me, "Look, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, look, you know, I, I've done a little bit of reading on this. I'm not happy with what's happening." And I said, "I can't." work out why I should have to do that. Now, my father died when I was very young. My mother spent family savings on, on my education and, and, and that of my sisters. And I just said, look, you, you've just spent life savings on me getting through school. And I went to a very good college at um, uh, in Australia called Xavier College in um, Melbourne, which is the uh, equal number one. We say it's the number one Catholic college in, in Australia, but it's um, the people up in Sydney, Australia would disagree and say Riverview is, but... Uh, we have that dispute, that dispute's a running dispute. But um, this was all prominent at the time. We were very concerned. And I just said, well, look, if I can't get to uni, I'll, um, I will, uh, with a few mates, we'll just have to nick off and, um, you know, maybe do some jobs around Australia or whatever. But we're, we're, we're not going. I've certainly made a decision. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to fight that war. I, I couldn't see much point in it. And it was prominent in our newspapers, on TV. We did a lot of reading and we had a lot of big, anti-war marches in the late 60s in Australia. And in Australia, did you? I did wow. Uh, 200,000, 300,000 people marching through the streets of Melbourne up to um, Parliament House you know, at, the, at the state parliament level and the federal buildings uh, disputing the war. And it, it was a massive issue. In fact, we've just, of recent times, a show called Rolling Thunder Vietnam was uh, presented again um, at our famous Palais Theatre in the... Um, Melbourne here two weeks ago, which I attended, which had uh, Vietnam veterans present who were given a round of applause by the audience uh, and as such from the point of view that they'd been, you know, vilified coming back home and hadn't been treated well at all. I think a very similar situation happened in the US with oh, uh, returned ser- servicemen and that the fact that they'd actually fought for their country, they were shown respect, the fact that they did go. Um, rather than just be vilified because they, they made that decision. Because at the time, uh, a lot of people thought that the war had, you know, had to be fought and we had to back the USA on the on the um, the efforts over there. In fact, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time had the saying, which he presented to the media regularly, I'm all the way with LBJ. And LBJ came to Australia in 1960, um, well, when was it, 69, it might have been 67, and uh, actually had demonstrators in the streets amongst the people cheering him. People were throwing rotten fruit and tomatoes at the at the motorcade as it went through the streets. And he was booed as well as a lot of people cheering. He was also booed vociferously as well. I, I think most Americans didn't realize it's interesting to hear that perspective that, that uh, you had uh, anti-war marches in Australia and you had uh, Vietnam vets being booed in Australia. That's, that is, that does mirror what we saw over here. So, you started. You started getting interested in the subject in college. Um, what were some of the first books you you read? Did you read the Whitewash series, Rush of Judgment, uh, Accessories After the Fact? Uh, look, it was bits of. It was mainly articles that were printed. The, the, the university newspaper, which tackled these issues, um, went on with um, other smaller articles from then on. Now there wasn't. 
there wasn't much for us to see. There, there, there wasn't much in the way of books. I, I couldn't find any books hmm. around that time. Well, Mark Lane was the first person, I think, that I remember uh, had a TV um, yeah. uh, documentary, I think, a few years after the assassination happened. But I only saw that. Um, you know, very in very recent times, I didn't see it at the time. So there was the very limited material in being able to follow up on the topic. It was, it was really only as years went on um, uh, that uh, you saw various items printed. There was a documentary made by the BBC, "The Men Who Killed Kennedy," uh, which was the first, I think, yes. big documentary right. that I remember seeing. And um, uh, a Turner, yeah, yeah, which introduced the. Uh, the presentation of the so-called Corsican Corsican hitmen that one yeah. of them was interviewed in jail. He was in his must have been in his eighties or nineties or something. I think uh, uh, that issue was raised about amongst the the, the uh, allegations of who was involved in the the physical aspect of the whole thing. Um, and it was from then on that that documentary was the one that I think really opened things up. And then of course the Kevin Costner's film was also very big here and comment was made, Gerald Ford was quoted in the paper as calling it science fiction and all this, or words to that effect, and I thought at the time, well, gee, was that's a cop-out, you know, I mean, treated with a bit of respect, there's some serious issues, very serious issues about the manner in which the whole thing, you know, happened in the, in the, the alleged cover-up that took place after it, that just as a lawyer, I, I just found it virtually ludicrous that, um, the Warren Commission report reached the conclusions it did with limited material and just sideswiped it. And then the lack of knowledge of a lot of people in what the the House Committee and the Church Committee discussed and reached the results, so to speak, in their committees of the late 70s, I think was another time when I was at uh, just finishing uni when that was happening. Um, and these other issues about um, conspiracies then came to light and that there was the a virtual committee order, if you want to call it that, saying that um, there was more than one gunman. And as soon as that was mentioned, I expected the American government of the day to take up the, the effort <laughs> in being able to examine that. But uh, yeah, you could smell a rat straight away when no one had any interest in it from governments through to the um, you know, Carter administration, Reagan to Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. No one showed any right. interest whatsoever. No. And then, you know, as lawyers, I mean, I speak to lawyers, some of them say, yeah, it's, that, that was terrible and why wasn't it gone on with? And others say they, they don't care about it and they just get on with life. So it, it's an issue. That I think it's a fairly polarised situation. Some people want to keep trusting the government 100% and believing that everything is hunky-dory and being attended to in the appropriate manner. And there are other people say, hang on a minute, what's going on here? And then you look behind the thing. I think one of them, the big commentators said there's only one thing you've really got to do in a case like this, that's follow the money, find out who benefited from that assassination and how it affected American uh, economics and life per se, and, and in particular the Vietnam War situation, thrown in with uh, other other aspects of what was going on around the world. Oh, absolutely. And you, you described uh, um, the uh, the men who killed Kennedy, Nigel Turner, Syria, and that, that for a long time that was the only thing that was allowed on American television that was pro conspiracy. Yes. Every other everything else was censored. But as you know, what happened to that when they had the uh, the Airden episode? They had, had two. Those episodes were from the '80s, and then they had two new episodes they filmed in the '90s. One of them was called The Guilty Men, 
And that one basically talked about LBJ and pointed the finger at him, talked about Mac Wallace and the hitman, how he may have murdered, he may have ordered a hit on his own sister, just yes. a horrible human being. And uh, you know what happened there where Jack Valenti, who was still alive, Lady Byrne Johnson, who was still alive. They pressured the History Channel. They took it off the air. That's it hasn't right. been seen since. So if you're watching that, if you never got a chance to watch it, <laughs> uh, it, it, it it's, a, it's amazing to hear. And it sounds like Australian TV adhered to this as well. Did they pretty much, if they, when they talked about the JFK assassination, I assume they adopted the uh, the pro Warren Commission line. No, look, no doubt about that. Even when newspaper articles are printed here about anything, they still refer back to the Warren Commission and. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and the sole assassin theory. No one in, in newspaper articles, I've never seen them. The church committee mentioned the house committee um, no. on uh, un-American activities, etc. You never hear them. They never go into any depth or they're just not interested in opening that can of worms. And that's the, that's been the problem with our media as well. Um, it's been a, a big problem. And you're right. The, that, that, that in, the English production was the, the only thing that was available to see. And, I, and in fact, I had to buy that on, on a um, an old uh, tape from a shop, I think uh, either I can't remember if it was new or second hand. I think it was new that I found in a shop. I mean, and then play it on the on my TV that way uh, on a video recorder because it, it it I can't remember ever being shown on TV in Australia. I can't remember it actually being shown. Since then, there was even recently a, a still a um, concocted thing that was put on our current one of our current affairs shows about an Australian detective who carried out an examination and said that the assassination was carried out by action by an FBI or a secret service guy who was on the car behind who, who shot JFK in the back of their head. Now, yeah. I mean, that's just absolute garbage. If you look, anyone with um, any common sense whatsoever, when you look at the footage, that the, the the bullet that had the major effect was the one that hit him from the, the front right. and took off that large chunk of skull, so to speak, on the right side of his skull, which either came from the grassy knoll area or from the sewer pipe area in the street, which had that gap in it, where there was that allegation of that young gunman that I think used to be a sniper, an army sniper or something, rather only in his 20s, uh, shot Kenny from there with the upward trajectory because one of the, the scientific experts said the bullet was actually on a on an angle of some degrees that had to come from downwards going upwards to, right. to do that amount of damage. And he was that close to the president when it happened. Now, I mean, these issues just don't get debated or looked at conclusively at all. One of the most excellent, uh, well, documentaries or, um, well, lectures that I saw was by a man named Brian Snowdy and his assistant, a former mafia uh, guy by the name of Rod McKenzie, who assisted him with that at, a, I think, a university lecture somewhere, I, th I think a number of years ago, where he went through, uh, he had made two two of these uh, speeches one or lectures. One of them was called A Cast of Characters. Another rally. Sorry, yeah. I was yelling at my dog. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Right. And, uh, a Cast yeah. of Characters, it was called, um, where he named, you know, quite a substantial number of um, people involved in the assassination. Uh, in that uh, in, in that synopsis, and uh, uh, mentioned also the I think, I think the meeting around at um, uh, Murchison's premises in Dallas, the um, the uh, uh, former owner of the Dallas Cowboys, the senior Murchison around mm -hmm. at his premises that included a substantial number of what you might call colourful 
business identities and the various figures, mm-hmm. political and otherwise, uh, that went through a substantial amount of this this material. Um, and the other the other documentary that's been prominent that I've seen a couple of times, the Dark Legacy of George W. Bush, which uh, covered a lot of these topics of his infamous that's career. That's probably the the online. Is that the one by John Hankey online? That's probably a. I, I, is that the one you saw it online? Yeah, that's the one that uh, discussed Bush's involvement in the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, and, I think that's Hanky. Yeah, he was on my show a few weeks back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw bits of that and um, the Cuban, the the, the Cuban thing. And um, one person I have listened to with great respect has been Lieutenant Colonel Fletcher Prouty from the Joint Chiefs sure. of Staff. I, sure. I, I take the view that if you've got a member that's fairly high up in a military organisation who comes out and says his boss was effectively the organiser of an assassination of a president, I take a lot of notice. And uh, they mm-hmm. mentioned uh, the General um, uh, Lansdale, who was heavily involved in Vietnam as being, you know, an organiser or orchestrator of the of the assassination and photographed at the scene walking next to the fence with his hand, making a hand signal as the three uh, tramps were walked by by some dodgy-looking police officers with um, pants that didn't fit and white socks on and whatever. They looked <laughs> quite out of place. Absolutely. I, I want I want a shout out to the uh, to let everybody know. I tried to let people I, I'm shadow man on Twitter and Facebook both. But I think my word got through to some on Twitter that uh, YouTube has suspended me for a week. So, uh, Stephen, we usually typically we live stream on several places, but YouTube is where I get the most people. But uh, whenever I talk about COVID, <coughs> they cite me for medical information, misinformation. So they did last week. And uh that's why we're not up there. So people, if you're looking out there, if you're wondering what's happening at YouTube, uh, that's why I can't live stream there today. I am live streaming on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, Rockfin, American Plug Channel. I see some of you in the chat room at Rockfin. I see Richard Frederick Frager. is over here by himself and Facebook. So if you're out there, you can participate in the chat. We usually have a much more active chat because then I can put the comments on the screen from YouTube. I can't do that with, with any of these. So just by way of explanation, if you wonder what's going on, it's not my fault. You t- and we're going to talk, Stephen, about because uh, I get a note from Australian Ben that you're also uh, are quite the critic critic of the COVID policy, especially you're living in uh, you're living in the the worst part, right? Isn't Melbourne? I mean, I, I wrote in my book Masking the Truth, which it's just out, guys. If you haven't gotten it, please check it out. Masking the Truth: How COVID nineteen destroyed civil liberties and shut down the world. Sherry Tenpenny wrote the forward. It's doing well. Please go out and get it if you haven't spread the word. But uh, so tell us about what what. What what it's I've talked to other people, but uh, you're right in the heart of that. There, what the tyranny there was worse than it was in this country, right? How, well, describe how that happened. Well, the the issue was 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 absolutely disgraceful. Uh, we've got a um, a three tiered system of government in Australia, which is a federal government. Uh, we've got seven states where there's state premiers who are in charge of those, and their parties, if they get the votes up, they they run those states. And then we've got local government level in the municipalities around the capital cities in the country so you look after basic items but in in victoria we've got a state government which is um uh, in control the alp the australian labor party which is a very different party to what it was back from what i described in the vietnam war days when people like uh, gough whitlam uh, and arthur Caldwell and these people were coming through and paul keating etc who were very democratic and wanted to see people get on in life with them. They, they had free university fees and um, got rid of conscription and, and didn't fall into line with um, USA policy at the time. And in fact, the Attorney General back then, Lionel Murphy, um, 
had a raid on ASIO, our intelligence headquarters, because um, he was worried about, I think, the amount of, uh, uh, well, contact and whatever and things being done with um, CIA and other organisations around the world and what they were up to and um, ended up having a raid, which was highly criticised by the media. But um, getting back to the COVID thing is we were locked down for the better part of over 18 months. We're probably locked down, I think, about 15 of those 18 months uh, when we had COVID ratings or people suffering from it that were very, very low and people dying. It was on the, the ladder of um, death, if you want to call it for any other reason, where, of course, heart attacks and cancer were number one and two, COVID number 38 on the list. And the um, restrictions on movement, you couldn't go outside five kilometres of your place of living or virtually place of work. Or if you did work outside 5K, you had to carry a certificate signed by your employer, if you're employed or if you had your own business, like I did with my legal practice, I had to sign my own certificate that I was going from my place of work to a courtroom or to a client's premises to get documents signed or whatever it might be. And you could have been pulled over by the police and they demand to see that document. So it had all the auspices of a totalitarian um, uh, regime about it. It was it was appallingly done. There were demonstrations there as well where police started using rubber bullets on, on COVID demonstrators quite nastily and most unnecessary. And um, the whole situation was uh, one of our newspapers, which stood up, which is a Rupert Murdoch paper. Of course, Murdoch been in the news a bit with Fox and whatever with the Tucker Carlson situation recently and all that. But during the COVID thing, their journalists stood up to the state government and were highly critical of the manner in which the state government ran the whole COVID exercise throughout Victoria, where, where I am. And it's very disappointing. The um, the Premier here is very close to, he's got close relationships with China and he had a, a, a big economic policy that he put together himself or his people that he signed off with China without federal government permission, which is a bit like, say, Gavin Newsom in California or Ron DeSantis in, in Florida going off and signing a deal with China and uh, not telling the president or the House or the Senate or anything what he was up to sort of thing. So that's that's the sort of similarity that you would have. And this the Premier here just recently had a conference with Chinese officials in Melbourne with no federal government members present or anyone else present. He just effectively does what he wants. And it's, it's, it's tragic in relation to the um, workings of parliament and democracy in general that we just don't we don't have that feeling anymore that we've got a democratic government he, he's won elections throughout this period quite substantially because the opposition at the moment are, are going through a very much a cultural uh, change of problems the liberal party which are probably more aligned to the republican party in america whereas the alp are more democrat minded in terms of what you've currently got very similar um are going through a cultural meltdown, so to speak, because their their left wing and their right wing are fighting over what their policies are going to be going forward, and they're 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 virtually cannibalising themselves and not putting up an effective opposition. So yeah, the the ALP will be able to, to to he can put together whatever policies he wants, and they just uh, they just proceed on. Well, when you had as you mentioned Tucker Carlson, we we had some. 
uh, token opposition here, but not much. That's what my book uh, explores, Mask of the Truth, how there was no no opposition to this tyranny uh, in Australia because it was so heavy-handed there. Yes. How many, I mean, it would, how, the, there was, was there nobody in the media or no, you know, much political opposition to it? It seems like well, the whole world rolled over for this stuff. Yeah, well, well, there was opposition in the Herald Sun with um, some journalists, uh, Rita Panahai, Andrew Bolt in particular, the two key people in the Herald Sun were quite vociferous against what the state government was doing in relation to those issues and surrounding issues. And um, the Murdoch press did stand up quite strongly. And I give them a lot of credit for it, that um, they, were, they were the only people doing it. Uh, I mean, the, the other media outlets mostly just rolled along with the government and journalists turning up to press conferences. The only journalists putting heat on the state government at the time was a lady by the name of Peter Credlin, who's on Sky News here. Uh, and um, I think Rachel Baxendale from the Australian newspaper, which is also part of the Murdoch press, were the only people really putting pressure on the Premier and government people and the, the government's so-called medical uh, people here, um, putting pressure on making them explain why they were doing what they were doing. But it was just, it, it was against the flood. You, you, we, we just got um, rolled over. We got pushed around and people were worried if they went without outside five kilometres, they'd be fined $10,000, $15,000 or whatever it might be. It was, it was quite a worry and a, a complete breach of, Democracy. What really made me angry was that even the Liberal Party here didn't stand up when he brought in virtually um, uh, enforced vaccinations for government employees. That was the end of it. And I expected the Liberal Party to stand up and say, look, we're a, a party that believes in freedom of medication, freedom of, of sorting out your own medicines and not this sort of stuff. And, and the federal government here, the Liberal government that was in power in Canberra banned ivermectin. And I, I'm not too sure about hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. I think it's all that. But yeah. ivermectin was put on a ban list. My general practitioner doctor in Melbourne was prescribing that originally to people who um, had got COVID and had uh, there were people in, interviewed on Sky News that were taking ivermectin and um, it did successfully work on them. And then all of a sudden it was banned by the Liberal government. And that's when I got very upset with them. And I ended up joining a, a party called the United Australia Party, which is probably more in line with the thoughts of people like Donald Trump than, than anybody else, that it's more of a a party that says, hang on a minute, we're, we're democratically minded people who want freedom of speech, freedom of medicine. Uh, we want to tax China for when the iron ore gets sold to China, we want to put a 15% tax on them to pay for the COVID debt because we reckon they had a good hand in, in causing that and tackling the issues head on with a freedom of democracy approach and, and, um, I was on the election hustings on state and federal elections and I was abused, you know, for shouting out some of these policies. And um, people were, they've been so uh, um, um, uh, completely wrapped up in what's been said by uh, other newspapers, media outlets and the state and federal governments about COVID that they, they can't think it out anymore. And they've been um, just, just swamped. And uh, I think there's a saying, they call it Stockholm Syndrome, I think, where you yes. you, you keep on voting in the people who are punishing you. You keep on or stamping on your rights. You keep voting them in because you think it might change or there's no alternative or that's the way life is or something or other. Stockholm Syndrome, and that's what uh, some people describe in Victoria as in that um, in that in that period of time it hasn't improved much 
now, actually. There's still, uh, the Premier's still running rampant on various things, but he's running out of money now. He's got no money to spend on projects, and a lot of his big projects have come to a dead halt. Well, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's it looks like we're outnumbered, uh, apparently all over the world. I know around this area, we just had a... Uh, uh, a local Soros prosecutor, just you know, it's one of these awful people, and he just he was reelected with fifty five percent of the votes. But and I, I look at the signs. I see the signs when I'm walking around my neighborhood and anything, everything. And I, you know, I don't, they don't need much vote fraud in most places. In Australia, uh, it must be frustrating there. And you know, generally, it sounds like you're awake. Uh, we could talk about other issues, but JF, JFK assassination and COVID alone, those are two big issues that usually indicate you're awake. So uh, how how is it Australia? I mean, do you, um, how is your family and the people around you? And most of us here are ostracized in our families. They, they think we're nuts or they don't pay attention to us or whatever. We don't influence them, that's for sure. Uh, my son is the only one I've woken up ever uh, here in, in terms of my family. But how is it over there? In ter- do, you, do you feel outnumbered as well? You must have during COVID when you saw everybody scuttling around in their masks and obeying all these nonsensical orders. Oh, I noted about that. Look, we've all had most of us who, who might be in opposition to the vaccine mandates um, have uh, received criticism, family members, uh, friends, uh, arguments, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> why, why can't you just do what we're all doing? Everyone's getting vaccinated and that. We've got 27 million people in Australia of which I think they've they've dished out 20 million um more than that now, uh, vaccines. A lot of people have been double, triple and quadruple jabbed and they just, I just, I, I just shake my head because um, you don't have to be Einstein to read if you do your research and that, that these vaccinations were brought along at, at, at warp speed, at super speed and could yes. not have properly been properly checked. And they only originally had interim uh, certificates for uh, development and for um, their veracity at the very start. And then we actually had uh, Professor Peter McCulloch come out here and do a lecture tour of Australia in February this year, with, along with um, another doctor who both he and Professor McCulloch gave evidence in front of the Senate. They said, I think a couple of years ago, and were not believed or talked down or whatever by the mainly the Democrats, just wouldn't follow what they were on about. And no one took any notice when Donald Trump got COVID in um, October 2020 when the, uh, he was election campaigning or whatever. Mm-hmm. That his own doctor, Washington House doctor, went on the press on the White House lawns and said, we're giving him eight, nine different products. Now, I don't know whether Ivermectin was part of it. I haven't got the list in front of me, but Remdesivir and various other products and vitamins and minerals and stuff were, were um, given to the president. He recovered within about 10 days and no, no one just... No, no one latched onto that. It just said, well, if if, if if he can recover, he's at the time was about 73 or four or whatever he was, if he can recover from it, you know, in his condition, and he's he probably not the fittest man around, but hmm. whatever level of fitness he was in and all the rest of it, then what are the rest of us? Why are the rest of us starting to not do that or get those substances if we can afford them on all the rest of it? So, I mean, very interesting to hear Professor McCulloch when he came out because he's been put on... Mr. Biden's ban list, I think. Uh, he gave a talk, and before he started, he asked the audience in the auditorium here in Melbourne, how many of you are members of the medical profession, either a doctor, a nurse, or a surgeon, or this one? 40% of the audience were members of the medical profession in Melbourne, 40%, which shows you how much doubt they had about what they were doing medically here. So 
there's been whispers out here that the medical profession way back when were experimenting with ivermectin themselves and hydroxychloroquine that they about 800 of them uh, were taking it secretly or something but i've got no evidence of uh, of that but that gave me a an indication that even the medicos here were pressured you know and they virtually were they were pressured with losing their certificates if they went publicly criticizing them the, the um, vaccinations well do you have uh, i don't have any confidence do you have any confidence if uh, they decided to uh this fall to say ah, this is the worst COVID strain ever. You know we've got to go into super duper lockdown mode. I, I don't. Would, how would Australia? You think they would react the same way they did before? They would go over the top in terms of, uh, you know, asking people if they had a right to be at a particular place or that kind of stuff that they were doing. The current premier uh, in Victoria would possibly, I think, this time he'd speak to his cabinet and just say, "Look, I want to do the, the COVID thing the, the way I did it the last time," and I think he's going to have greater opposition. Um, normally there would be, there's about 15,000 hardcore protesters who are prepared to march and virtually march through police lines and all the rest of it and get pepper sprayed or capsicum mm -hmm. sprayed and hit with rubber bullets and all the rest of it. Now that 15,000, if that grew to 100,000 or bigger than that, then you, you know, they could have some big problems. But uh, he can only really hit people who are employed by the government in, in mandate uh, issues forcing people to take vaccines. They can't really do it with um, uh, self-employed people because he's, what's he going to do? Force people out of their houses to go to the, the chemist or the doctors to get jabbed. So uh, whether or not it gets to the stage where he then puts together certificates where you can't buy food uh, unless you've got a certificate to show to the, the fruit and vegetable man or the, the butcher and all that when you're buying your meats or whatever you might be eating, if it gets to that stage, that's when it could get very, very ugly here. Uh, and I, I would hope, shudder to think that that would ever happen, that democratic rights would be damaged to the nth degree, right to the end zone, so to speak. Uh, I don't know whether he's got the, the wherewithal to do that. There have been talks about him standing down, but, you know, I don't listen. I think the man's power hungry and he wants to stay in for as long as he can stay in there as he, as he, as he gets the votes. But young people in, in Australia and in Victoria, having been on the hustings and handing out how to vote cards for UAP, I've found young people to be totally disinterested in politics. They, they, all they do is look at their smartphones uh, that they're uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever looking around with. They've got no interest in listening to any debate about vaccines, uh, economic, anything like that at all, or anything to do with democracy uh, or what's going on around the world. They, they couldn't give a hoop or a holler, and they just uh, go and go in and vote like like sheep, really, and then come out, and then you find the bloke that's uh, the the totalitarian gets back in again. Yeah, so that, that, that's how it is. Yeah, people of younger people are just the, the lack of interest in politics is just amazing compared to when I was going through university when it was massive uh, on our campus at, at, at Monash between people who supported Vietnam who didn't support it, uh, ALP people, Liberal Party people. Some of the the bigger names in both parties came from that uni in that era. So. There it is. Well, how, how does the uh, how does the Australian mainstream media compare to here? I mean, so there's there, there you said the uh, Murdoch companies were maybe a little skeptical of it, but I mean, is there here we have just an all encompassing uh, state? I call it state controlled media. It's the same as TASS and Pravda. It's just Americans are too dumb to realize it's TASS and Pravda. They they, they actually think some well, and without Tucker Carlson again, some people criticize him, but he did offer an alternative. 
uh, that you didn't get anywhere else on television. And that's gone now. And uh, Fox's news ratings have collapsed because yeah. of that, because he was the only one doing it. So is there is there a Tucker Carlson type over there? Is there any, anywhere you can get a different viewpoint that's uh, on the television where they're skeptical? Because Tucker was skeptical of JFK and a lot of other stuff, too. Is there anyone over there that's presenting the other side? Uh, there, there, as I mentioned previously on Sky News, which is, a, um, I think, a, still a Murdoch-owned operation, um, there is a panel show involving um, uh, Rowan Dean, uh, James Morrow and Rita Panahai, which is highly sceptical of a lot of this, um, uh, uh, you know, so-called Democratic Party-inspired uh, uh, or deep state-inspired uh, discussion, which is, you know, to do with all sorts of things, whether it involves overseas involvement of the government, uh, medications, vaccines, um, uh, you know, jumping on democratic rights, etc. They do stand up, and Andrew Bolt's another one on on those shows. Um, Paul Murray at night. There, there are journalists who do argue on these issues. I mean, Paul Murray uh, does spend uh, a fair bit of time looking at um, Joe Biden and, and criticising. Uh, his inability to present himself to the American public, even in a proper format, to be able to properly debate issues and put policies and all the rest of it and what's going on there. So there is some pushback from that aspect. But the trouble is their ratings aren't all that high. There aren't a great deal of people who watch Sky News or Late Night Sky. And there are people in newspapers who who call it, um, you know, the dark hours of the night when these people, you know, start talking about conspiracy stuff and this and that and all the rest of it. You're virtually vilified or laughed at um, uh, when you get onto some of this stuff. So your mainstream media during the the, the waking hours is very much uh, in line with what you've said is happening over there. That uh, is just one way traffic. CNN, MNSBC, and those other stations with some of the people on there. I've seen some of them who get carried away and get very orchestrated. I just feel like the way they actually treat Donald Trump with a substantial amount of disrespect, uh, not, not that he's everyone's cup of tea, of course he isn't, but uh, they, they've got a different set of rules for Trump that they've got for Biden and his team yeah. and Pelosi and Schumer and Schiff, who seem to be able to do or say anything, but uh, the same set of principles aren't applied to Trump uh, in particular, and maybe to a lesser degree, a lot lesser degree, to Sanders, who seems to be a bit more acceptable to some of those people than than what Trump has been. Yeah, well, how how is Trump viewed in Australia generally? Uh, Trump is treated here effectively the same way he's treated in America, actually, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, the newspapers uh, generally, uh, you know, hammering uh, big time on on just about everything, and uh, he he doesn't get much much um, leeway, although recently a, a left-wing or allegedly, I'll say allegedly left-wing person who's on a TV show here who I expected to be very much anti-him has actually called in a newspaper article for the uh, Department of Justice, the New York Attorney General and, and other officials in the USA to back off Trump because mm-hmm. they said they're going to they're going to do one of two things. Either he's, going to, he's, he's either going to be um, jailed or whatever and turned into a martyr or if he has a big win, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be spouting forth and jumping into them for the next, you know, four to five years. And uh, he'll be off and running to the races with the election just coming up around the corner. So he sees it as a, whatever's going on now, he actually saw it as a win-win for Trump either way, whatever happened. 
So well, he's a different perspective on it than any other journalist. Well, certainly we have a lot of stories for the 2024 election. What Now, being this, you've studied the JFK assassination so much. What do you think of the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Well, I think it's magnificent because it, it, it virtually gives the the so-called true democratic forces in the, the USA a one-two punch where, where they've got a chance here for some, um, you know, common sense and decency to come back into American politics that, that, that just hasn't been there now for some, some length of time. And, you, you know, it's I actually was hoping that, and, and this was mentioned recently in an article I read on uh, my email chain somewhere, that... Uh, some people were hoping that Trump and RFK Jr. could possibly get together as a presidential, vice presidential running team. Now, some people think, how could that be? One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. But I, I don't know how the ramifications would work out for the parties. But Kennedy and Trump, to me, seem to be very similar in terms of what they're, they're attempting to do. Although Kennedy said his son had fought in the Ukraine, but he was himself, I think, against the Ukraine yes. war, yes. wanted to see that settled. Yeah. Trump has said he'd go over there and knock their heads together and get them to reach some some agreement. And I, I wouldn't put it beyond. I mean, Trump's the sort of bloke who wants to get big time results. I know. I know he didn't do, and I know you've been critical of him. I read your yeah. article, and and, and 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 justifiably so that some things he should have done, like the wall, should have been yeah, they should have been finished, and and these should have been done. So he could actually say, well, I finished that task that. I wanted to keep these illegal people out, these drug runners, sex slavers and all the rest of it. I finally got that done and wasn't able to get it finished and couldn't fight the Democrats as best as he possibly could or whatever and got sidetracked. So I think in that first presidential run, I think I just don't think he knew exactly who he could choose or not choose for certain jobs, the, the best people he could get his hands on. And, and he had sackings and problems. He had the Democrats all over him every five minutes. I think that impeachment, Russian collusion, everything they could think of to hit him with, they hit him with. And it makes it pretty hard to run a presidency or a government when you've got all of that going on. I mean, America, is, as you pointed out, it's, it's in pretty poor shape. At the well, moment. It's it's incredible. And, and we, we had no opposition because Trump is supposed to be the leader of the opposition. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, you know, I call him Trump and Stein because I think he was yeah. a project that was, that was uh, de to designed to divide the country, which he's done. <clears throat> but, uh, He's, uh, you know, he's being prosecuted every time you bat an eye around here. And it's, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, Hunter Biden, who's got apparently on his laptop, has uh, originally Rudy Giuliani and others said it had to have him filmed raping a 10-year-old girl. Yeah. Does, I, I, yeah. I don't know how that's not a crime. I don't know. And it's filmed. But uh, they don't even mention that anymore. He apparently pled guilty to two misdemeanors. He's going to get nothing. A celebrity special, suspended sentence, yeah. whatever. So yeah, you're right. The double standard is so absurd. But I, I want to tip my hat to Matt Gates out there, who's I think one of yeah. the few in Congress that's pretty decent. But he stole my line. Somebody and Matt Gates is somebody on his staff is watching my show because he, uh, he in Congress the other day was going over chastising John Durham, who represents you know what I call the stupid party, the Republicans, and uh, he called him. He talked about the Washington Generals, and nobody but me has done that. I've called. I don't know if you're familiar with that as an Aussie, but uh, for decades in America, they had, were you familiar with the sports world? You know, the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Yeah. And, and they had this uh, WWE thing with basketball and I, no one's examined the phenomenon. I think I'm the only one talking about it, but uh, it started back in the thirties or forties, I think. And uh, again, this was during a period of racism and Jim Crow and all that. And you had an all black team 
playing an all-white team in, in exhibitions all over the country, and the all-black team, the Globetrotters, always won. It was openly – the referees, everybody was openly cheating for them. The audiences, which were almost all white, openly rooting for the Globetrotters, and it was very w- – I don't know what psychological thing was going on there, but at any rate, the Washington Generals, I describe the, the Republicans as the Washington Generals. They're the designated losers, and that's what Matt Gates said in the, other, in the thing the other day. So somebody from his staff must be watching my show, or somehow he came along – he came up with this analogy at the same time I did. I don't know. I mean, he's pretty young, and the, nobody's talked about the Globetrotters for a while, let alone the Washington Generals. So uh, – yeah. But that's the way I look at it. The, the Republicans are, or I also call them the Republicucks, you know, that they are just, they don't, they don't do anything. And you can see what they're doing. They just, they just lose all the time there. And that's, that's what the Washington generals did. I don't know what it, yeah, it yeah. sounds like you have more of an opposition party in Australia, maybe than we do. Well, we're not uh, very, our opposition at the moment, both federally improving because they've got a good leader in Peter Dutton. But at a state level here in Victoria, it's a mess because they, they just suspended a, a female member of parliament because she was she was um, engaged in a women's rights protest on state parliament steps, uh, uh, trying to, uh, to argue for uh, all of the legal rights that women do still have against transgenderism coming into their sports and into their, <laughs> yeah. their, uh, into their line of, uh, of operations. And all of a sudden, a group of Nazis turned up doing Nazi salutes behind them in the view of the camera, of the news camera. And the Liberal Party leader thought that was such a bad look for his party, which was already fragmented, that he suspended her and they voted on it a couple of times and she's been rubbed out. Now, his party from there, there's been a lot of older members who have just fragmented from that. And she's been punished. She's got nothing to do with those Nazis, absolutely nothing. She's a she's a democratic person, a freedom person like the rest of us, and you're punishing her for no reason. And he said, oh, I've got to make a stand. I've got to make it look like that we won't tolerate any of that sort of behaviour. Well, she didn't do anything wrong. She's involved with another lady here in Australia, Catherine Deves, who stood uh, for the Liberal Party in New South Wales in the federal election, missed out, who runs an outfit called Women's Sport, Women's Sports Rights in Australia, which I um, have indicated to her I will help her with because of my sports background as well. And I've supported women in sport for years because my, my uh, stepdaughter is a former professional boxer and mm. uh, I've supported women in particular to, to, to maintain the protection and integrity of their sport, which I think is now being done by... Lord Sebastian Coe at Olympic Games level. I think he's brought in some rules and regulations about that to try and protect um, the women's side of the Olympic Games, which they need to keep a, a, an eye on very closely because, and I've seen what's happened in America with the college swimming where a, a male who calls down for himself <laughs> a female has been allowed to swim against the, the females yeah. and winning by a lap of the pool and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And, and yeah. what I say is this, if you are of a separate group. If you're not a male, if you don't call yourself a male, or if you're not born a male, or not born a female, and if you are transgender or bi- whatever it is, binary, non-binary, LGBTQ+, or whatever you call yourself, set up your own league. Set up the league yes. of your own and have a third gender league or a fourth gender league. Set your own leagues up. Don't infiltrate into another sexual group that you're not really part of and physiologically can't be part of ever. And that's a, becoming a massive dispute here. So, uh, so and, and so, becoming politicised. Yeah. So you had the same transgender uh, 
phenomenon going on in Australia as well. Oh, yeah, massive at this point in time. And um, uh, Catherine Deves has been at protests in um, around Australia and um, she's been abused and um, the, the, the opponents of that just only see one-way traffic. There's just lack of uh, democratic thought. But your, your comments, uh, during the um, uh, January, when the uh, voting for the Leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, when that was all happening, I found to be riveting viewing. I was watching that with a friend of mine who's also... Uh, very interested in American politics and his father's involved with the Liberal Party here. His uncle is. Um, we found it uh, riveting viewing uh, with the voting going on because uh, Mr McCarthy had to deal and negotiate with uh, Matty Geitz and uh, with uh, Lauren Bobbitt and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. People mm -hmm. standing up saying, well, hang on a minute. Uh, you want to be president. We want to be on... Uh, these committees where we've got a say in what goes on and what we investigate because there are things that need to be done. So, look, I, I look upon Matty Geitz, who you mentioned, uh, watching the show, and uh, Lauren Bobbitt and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as people who are very interested in, you know, the the, the, the sort of the poorer parts of America, the the the, um, the ones who are not recognised by Washington or anybody who are just yeah. left to rot on the vine. Uh, trying to do something that might improve their lot and to improve America generally, economically, and all the rest of it. Whether or not you believe in make America great again or whatever it might be, I can understand that the feelings that why should you have to put uh, military bases in so many countries around the world and expending your resources when you, your own infrastructure is starting to crumble a bit and you've got the, you know a, a big welter of poor people uh, yep. that just seem to have been lost in the process of the modern economic system. And uh, it is disappointing, and, and you hope that something can be done about it. So I think that the beauty of Trump coming along is that I think these people have started to think there is possibly a, a prospect of some success down the line of trying to get better policies and better things happening if they can clean out the so-called Washington swamp and get, get things moving as, as they should be, because I'm a massive fan of original American culture. I, I watch a lot of, you know, American films and, and documentaries and, and love my my original Hollywood movies and things so in mm. the the Clint Eastwoods and the, uh, and the John Waynes and all the rest of it. I mean, which I really enjoyed the, um, the whole uh, artistic streak running through uh, all of that based on original American background and whatever, which is, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys and trying to do the right thing and and that. But I think one problem that we see here in, in the American system is that, um, you know, like back in even in some of those movies, sheriffs and marshals had to put their name up for election every so often for every two or three. So they're actually on the election campaign as individuals, mm -hmm. as, as judges who get voted in. Um, I think, I don't know whether that still happens in your state. So whether yeah. that made by the governor or whoever it might be, but that aspect has never been part of our system here where our judiciary and police and all the rest of it get appointed by, you know, the government's governor's general and uh, attorney's general and all the rest of it uh, in the within the, the political system. Well, most of our judges are appointed too, but uh, it, it's, it's at local officials a lot. To, a lot of us are trying to say really the only solution for us is to go back to local and try to start... Uh, our own uh, governments at a local level, but uh, you know, it's unfortunately though that this government's not going to let us do that. 
They're yes. ne- they're they're never going to let they they won't leave us alone. That's the problem. So we would we would love to disengage and we want out, you know. But we tried that back in 1860. Some groups tried that. They tried to secede, and uh, you saw what happened. Almost a million people died. So I don't think has there been any kind of movement over there? Like, is there are there parts of Australia that are uh, more conservative or less with the program than others? Do you have red and blue type areas in Australia over there? Uh, well, look, it's not as proficient as what I've seen. I did see Marjorie Taylor Greene said that might get to the stage where the red states might have to disenfranchise themselves from the blue states. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I found found that uh, interesting. What I like about um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is that she she, she actually comes up with an idea (laughs) like that, just indicating that, look, things aren't, they're so bad here that we've got to start thinking in this format. So I give her a lot of credit. I did read that she, when she got to, I don't know if this is true or not, but when she got voted in that she, um, she's used to carrying a gun to protect herself. Yes, and yes. Was carrying it around, around Washington or something that was worried about if she didn't have it on or that she might get attacked going to have dinner or something like that, which I was quite uh, um, well amused by. But also I thought, well, she was, you know, I'd be thinking similar ways if the, if the, if the criminal element around there is that bad that you you want to protect yourself, so to speak. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, we have got a, a system, a, 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 a particular... There are people around who uh, would like to disenfranchise. One of them was the Premier of West Australia. I think he made similar comments when COVID was on when because he actually stopped people from the southern and eastern states from coming into West Australia at the border. He wouldn't let anyone come in because he didn't want them to bring their COVID with them. So he, 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 he chopped them all out. He wouldn't let them fly in for tourism or anything. So the people over there, some of them, and I don't know, I don't want to misquote him. I don't know whether he said it, but there were people over there who said, we, we need to cut ourselves off from the rest of Australia and form the government of Western Australia. So there was a comment made and, and that thought process didn't take off, but uh, people were saying, oh, he can't do that. And that's just showmanship or whatever, but yeah, there were people over there would have been quite serious because West Australia is a state over here which has a large amount of our mineral resources uh, in the ground and it's a big mining state uh, that, that sells a lot of their products overseas into Asia, Southeast Asia, etc. And uh, it's quite a, well, it was a wealthy state. I think it's still fairly wealthy um, with what they've got there. But, uh, yeah, that, that thought process was part and parcel of of their thinking, but nothing has gotten off the ground, so to speak, because our, there's still a prospect at the next federal election that things might even up a bit. And maybe uh, by that stage, the Liberal and country parties in coalition might be in a position to try and attempt to win. But it's going to be very difficult because, as I, I point out again, the, the voters between the ages of about 18 and 45, 18 to 50, are heavily entrenched in... Uh, what I think you call or we call their wokeism and yeah. uh, damaging uh, uh, majority rights for the sake of minorities, individuals. Uh, there's going to be massive transgender fights coming up in sport yeah. and in other areas of life. There's going to yeah. be all sorts of things coming up, and uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a very difficult era coming coming along. But it, it just depends. I, I don't know. It's that people can sell their policies and get out there and sell them. Uh, on the hustings and in the in the media, but mainstream media, just like in your country, are probably not quite as biased or as one-sided. I've seen some people in some of your other shows uh, here and there, which is there, there's there's 
a lady on one program, I think her name's Rachel Meadows. I've seen Don Lemon. I've seen <laughs> yeah. all those people. And I just think, what yeah. the hell? You know, what are they eating for breakfast? Yeah, you know, they, yeah they, don't even, they don't even try to uh, make any pretense advice. My, my friend Vince Agnelli in the Rockman chat room, Vince, you know I'm with you. He says we should, we, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do local. And I, I, I'm with you, Vince. I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm just saying I, 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 I know them pretty well. And they just, uh, you know, that's why Marjorie Taylor Greene's idea of us, we do need a national divorce. You know, we have irreconcilable differences, as so many men and women have said over the years. But it's it, the one side's not going to give us because we, we, we'd be fine without them. We'd be, at, yeah. we, we, we would live, we'd be great, but they can't live without us. They're like <laughs> vampires, you know, they're parasites. They need us to exist and uh, they need us, they need somebody to cancel. Who are they going to cancel if they're, how is the cancel culture over there in Australia? Is it, is it a lot? Do, can people get fired from their jobs for their Facebook posts and stuff like it happens here? Well, look, I, I, unless it's printed in the media about what's happening at job sites and all the rest of it, uh, not not to the same degree, although I have read things. I mean, people who refused to take vaccines who were government employees lost their jobs. Yeah. Uh, and they were virtually on unemployment benefits or whatever they went on. I mean, it was a terrible time, but uh, a number of them did. Uh, that, that's been the biggest problem, has been the, 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 the government-induced vaccine mandates and forcing people out of their work. Uh, as far as being... Uh, we did have one uh, case here involving a rugby player who's also a church pastor who um, uh, read from the Bible in his... Uh, church service that was highly critical of of um, uh, a group of people, not just one group, but one sexual group or whatever, and they went ballistic and the head of the rugby league threw him out of the competition as such, and that yeah. went, to, went to court. He went overseas to, I think he, he won the case and he got some damages or whatever he got. Wow. But he ended up playing rugby in France. I think he went over there and it was it was big for a while. It was uh, it went from over, you know, over a year and uh, the Australian newspaper, which is Murdoch Press and the Herald Sun, stood behind the player and the other media people were saying, well, look, you can't make the comments he's making. So if you come out publicly, if you're a top sportsman or a top actor or actress or someone in the public eye and you come out and you get into the transgender debate or any other issue and you you become highly critical of one group against the other, you're going to find yourself uh, being heavily criticised and um, you know, it could end up costing you jobs. Good enough, you'll be pushed aside, and uh, you know the, the the weight of the the majority community uh, virtually comes down on top of you. We're having a massive dispute over here at the moment about what's called the Indigenous Voice, which the current Labor government wishes to present as a referendum to change the referendum to give Indigenous population a, a bigger voice in the mm. in the general running. We're of familiar the with that? That's the Aborigines, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which. Um, uh, has problems because it, it, it just hasn't been fully explained all the elements of it about what can be done or can't be done are set out properly about how the the the, the, the uh, constitution will be amended what the wording will be and all the rest of it i mean i just haven't seen it printed anywhere and it, it's causing consternation and um, there, there are other ways and means we've had both political parties have had many years to sort out the indigenous issue which which is basically is that the, the indigenous people here have a huge problem in in being able to assimilate in, in, into like a, a double living arrangement, which is to keep their indigenous um, um, 
upbringing with being able to uh, enter into a European-style community working environment and or, uh, uh, you know, working environment and uh, moving forward environment to get people to work together. It's been many years and, and they just haven't got about it the right way. They've thrown money at people which has been squandered. Uh, administration, a lot of that money gets caught up in administration and never reaches the areas it's meant to reach, the old story. I think you might have had a similar problem. in. Yeah, uh, we've, we've had a little bit out over here. <laughs> Just a bit. What, what's what's immigration like over there? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, our borders are completely down well, and uh, our society is yeah. being transformed. What's it like over in Australia? Over here, we, um, during COVID, we didn't have any immigration, which is as you'd expect, but... Yeah. The, the Labor Party governments in particular um, um, inclined to just increase immigration. I think there's been the Chinese university students are all coming back or they might even all be back by now. I think in Melbourne there was going to be 6,000 plus coming in, plus about 400,000 Australia-wide. Uh, and we've got over here, although we have close to what could be called full employment at the moment, we've got inflationary problems like America has and interest rates going through the roof. There's been about 14 rises in the last um, 14 months, so to speak, nearly one a month. And that, that is still continuing on. And there's a lack of housing. So there's, there's, there's demand for housing, but no houses going up because the costs of building a house have increased so heavily that um, builders are struggling to come to terms with being able to put together their contracts where they're going to make a profit. So there's a massive building structural problem throughout the whole country as you're probably aware that 90% of the population lives on the seaboard from the top of Queensland all the way around to West Australia on the, the coastal regions because of the temperate conditions in the middle. It's probably a bit like New Mexico and uh, like you've got New Mexico and uh, areas like that desert. There's a lot of desert area in Australia, probably more so than in the USA and obviously sparsely populated. So people head for the cities and they're becoming overcrowded. So we do have... We've got overcrowding, housing problems, economic problems, all starting to fester right now. And at the same time, a government foolishly and ridiculously bringing in hundreds of thousands of immigrants. Yeah. I don't know why, because they're going to add to the unemployment, to the unemployment. You will, exactly. They will do lower paid jobs, but that seems to be the only reason why they've been bringing in, because Australian, younger Australian people, unfortunately, seem to be becoming a bit lazy and not, not wanting to take up the mantle of those lesser paid jobs while they're training for something else or going to uni or something. No, it's, well, it's, this is a worldwide thing. It sounds like we in America, they've been preaching for decades. These immigrants are just doing the jobs Americans won't do. That's their line. They're just doing what Americans want. Well, not for what you want to pay them. <laughs> you're not paying them anything. Yeah, we're not going to go work on your roof and risk falling off for what you're paying, you know, $30 a day or whatever you mean. So, yeah, that's the problem. It's a... And isn't it funny that uh, that the only problem, the only countries that have uh, massive immigration are uh, majority white countries? I mean, why, why doesn't China have any immigration or Saudi Arabia? I, I don't. They don't seem to have a problem with them. Why is it just uh, well, <laughs> just Western countries? I don't think there's much demand in people trying to cross the border to get into China because they no, I wouldn't think that. Political system may not be uh, all that generous. Oh, I don't know why there's any demand to come here at this point. I mean, we're the we're the world's wealthiest banana. I, if I were, I would be going. You know, I, Americans may start going trying to get into Mexico. It may be better there now. For all I know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it is 
Well, what they see is what they see on TV and movies and all the rest of it. They see buildings and yeah. big houses and yeah. all the rest of it and thinking they're going to latch on to your medical system and to your economic system and get some free money or whatever it might be. But it just amazes me how, how the Democrats would just allow and they just keep allowing this to happen to swamp them with illegals coming in and, and, and bringing in COVID, bringing in drugs, fentanyl and all this sort of stuff as well as yeah. sex slavery and all the rest of it. They got massive problems, and what that's going to help the country? I mean, it's just it's just dumbing down or dragging down America to a, a lesser degree than what it needs to be by these people just swapping the place and, and adding what to the economy or to the country? Virtually, virtually nothing. And, and what does it say about what Mexico's do? Mexico just seemed to be happy for them just to do what they want. They, there seems to be no control on that side of the of the border. Sure. Mexico's glad to get rid of them. Sure. I mean, they're to get rid of South American countries as well, where people come up in those caravans and join up with them. You, you, I read somewhere where you can be a criminal from Europe and go and take a holiday in Cancun, Mexico, or some other holiday resort, put on a poncho and a sombrero and just uh, march across the border and call yourself a Mexican, you know, on the run. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden you join a big crime group in the USA and had the yeah. further problems there. It's just terrible. Yeah, absolutely no, it, terrible it's an absolute mess and again you know, these, these things don't happen accidentally because the problems obviously you said australia uh, at least uh, cut off immigration during uh COVID, and, and i point out in my new book masking the truth that that was the first tell that this was a psyop is the fact that if this had been a death if a deadly virus had been you know out there and threatening all of us the first thing any sane country would do is seal their borders it would have banned international travel. They never closed the border. The southern border stayed wide open the entire time under Trump. And then Biden yep. just opened it even further. So, I mean, you, you can't expect me to take this seriously if you're not closing the borders because you're not taking it seriously. But, yes. uh, but it sounds like Australia at least to that. But I want to shift a little bit. Uh, you have an, inter an interesting sports background. Tell us about that. How were you involved with the NFL? What, what, how did an Australian get involved? Uh, well, what happened there was um, back in the um, the uh, early nineties, uh, late eighties, early nineties in Australia, we we uh, we didn't have a management system over here or any type of backup system for sportsmen or women uh, at all until virtually. Uh, in fact, back then, Olympians, Olympic champions, and and people involved in the professional sport just had family members or maybe the odd accountant or something like that helping them. But I, coming through my law, I was always interested in sport. I, I did, if, if a sports law case came along in, in the law firm I started off with, I'd grab it and say, I'll run with that. And I was always interested in trying to in, improve the professionalism of professional sport, especially AFL footy, which was VFL, became AFL footy 1990. And there was a, a, another... Um, uh, lawyer here became the lawyer for the for the competition for the Australian Football League. His name's Jeff Brown. He's now the president of the Collingwood Football Club in our competition and very prominent uh, former lawyer and actually went into media and became a media mogul, so to speak, as well, uh, was the first uh, big person or big name to come into uh, managing uh, professional footballers. And I... I virtually um, came in behind him and and was doing bits and pieces of it and trying to do what I could. He had he had a bigger support background. He was connected to the Collingwood Footy Club. He played a couple of reserves games, I think, and met players down there and officials and whatever. And I didn't quite have that same infrastructure, but I I met players along the journey, just just here and there. And 
one of them I met was heavily interested in American football. He was in, in our game kicking is the, the basic part of our game, which is you know the punt kick, uh, drop punt, and, and whatever that the, some of these we were brought up to kick the ball as school kids to kick it 50, 60 metres, you know, and it's a it's a uh, it's a slightly bigger ball than the American ball, similar shape but but fat around the sides, and it's um uh, it's it's a lot easier to kick. Uh, distance, although when you get onto the American football, when you kick it our style, you can get some fairly extensive distance with it. As you've found in the uh, NFL competition, there have been a number of Australian players play as punters. Darren Bennett was probably the yeah. first really big name and made the Rose Bowl, I think, uh, at some stage there. And he played for 10 or 12 years for San Diego Chargers. Yep. And uh, another man, David Wing, his son... Uh, uh, has uh, he's got a contract? He's playing with someone, and we've had uh, Severio Rocker, a big full forward in our comp, who played for Philadelphia, was it? I'm not too sure. And that well, now my my man, and um, we, we had tryouts at the old Los Angeles Raiders headquarters and Los Angeles Rams back then, 1993 September, and he was um, the coaches who were there. They weren't out recruiting or doing whatever. We actually there the wrong time of year, but we had no choice. We had to go after our season finished. Uh, were quite impressed with what he could do with the ball. He was actually kicking what we call a drop punt, which is where the ball would kick more on the point of the ball. He was landing it in the end zone from 60 metres away. He said, I'll put it in that spot there. I'll be within two metres of where I say I'm going to land it. And yeah. they couldn't believe what he could do with the football. He said, you Australian guys. He said, this is this is unbelievable. So we had we got their interest up and um, I, was, I turned around to a Los Angeles... Charges, man, and I said, I'm ready to sign this boy up with you straight away. And I was on very <laughs> I was very keen. I was very keen. So you so, you you represented some of these players? Yeah, yeah. I represented um four players. Cool. Two who were in the prime competition here who were very well known at the time, and two reserves players who also could kick a ball very, very well. And I sent them over to um Reno, Nevada to a punting camp in the early part of nineteen ninety-four. I think it was uh, in February. There was a bit of trouble back here because the clubs that my players were with were very unhappy that they were in the USA doing all of this and trying to get into the American competition when they were one of them was still under contract here and I was actually banned from going to the ground here or going to presidential functions here and all the rest of it. I was sent to Coventry at, at, at one footy club because they said, look, you know, go to the airport and bring him back. This is ridiculous. And I said, no, he's got to fulfil his his destiny. He's only going to be three weeks, but he's got to see how he goes and see how he's going to pan out. He'll come back here, play the year here, and then if he gets a deal, he'll go back over there. So uh, there was there was a fair bit of consternation here about it, but we got a fair bit of publicity. There was no doubt about that at the time. Uh, and we got caught out a few times training where um, people reported us to the media and said, we've seen... Uh, Stephen Peake and his client down at the park kicking an American football, something's going on. So a bit of cloak and dagger about it too. It got a fair bit of publicity at the time. So we were trying, I could see the the uh, the two games. You, you, you've got a punter in your game, which you, you need guys who can kick a ball, you know, a particular way and and hang time is important. And, and my boys were concentrating on all of that. And it was, it was a great introduction because now we've got, over here in Australia, we've got a, a guy running an American football punting camp to send people to America for that that particular job. But the last 30 years really progressed now to 
where people there, there could be he could have 15 20 30 people in his camp at any one point in time trying to get to college football and nfl in, in the usa uh so that was a massive interest for me boxing and kickboxing i, I was brought up on muhammad ali i loved him um uh, watched we watched his fights at school the school i went to which was as i said xavier we'd stop classes to watch Ali fights on the TV in the Grand Hall and, and we'd be cheering for him. Mm-hmm. And um, especially when he, he came back from his suspension that that lull in his career when the Supreme Court took his licence off him, which was disgraceful, the boxing right. Right. took licence off him because he wouldn't go to Vietnam or do national service. Uh, we were, um, at the time, I know a lot of my friends, I in particular was really distressed and disappointed with that decision which took three and a half years off his career. But um, and when he came back, he was bigger than anything, and um, it was uh, massive. So I've had a big. Uh, I've commentated boxing here in Victoria uh, oh, for yeah. thirteen years, and kickboxing as well. Uh, Sam Greco and Stan Longanides were world kickboxing champions who fought at the Nagoya Dome in Japan for the Grand Master Series. Uh, have been very big. Sam has done some acting. He was in a film called Scooby Doo with Sarah Michelle Gellar about twenty two years yeah, ago, sure, sure. Uh, which was made here in Queensland. Uh, Sam had a role in that and uh, and had other roles in TV series. We had a crime series here called Underbelly, which um, after our gangland wars, uh, one of the TV stations decided to make a, a a series on that. So some of the guys got jobs in that. And uh, uh, it's been interesting, but I sort of, because I started doing my radio from a, from at the station SEM from 2004 onwards, so I had to give up the, by about 2010, I just couldn't do it all. So I had to uh, give up the boxing, kickboxing commentary, but there, horse racing is another sport I've been heavily involved in. Uh, but then being the football, boxing, kickboxing and horse racing have been, the, have been the biggest and I've had a lot of enjoyment out of it. And former American uh, man, actor and boxing commentator and judge Gus Curio came to Australia in the mid fifties and I became his lawyer in the, the early 90s and had a long relationship with the Hemi Sons, a politician now in Victoria, but was also in movies and dancing, uh, strictly ballroom and a dancing champion and all the rest of it. So the Mercurios stayed in Australia, very popular here. He's from Minnesota originally, he came out with the American Olympic team in 1956 and stayed here and did a lot of TV and movies uh, around, the, around the world, uh, Gus did. So... Uh, there's been that link up well, along the journey. It's been, I've had a mixed career. I've mainly been a lawyer most of the time. I mean, I've never stopped my law, but around that I've done the media work, the the horse racing, the football management and um, the commentary work and the that's, radio. That's quite an interesting uh, a stew you've got going there. That's pretty, you've got a, a nice mixture, uh, sports and everything. Oh, that's a, I always wondered why, um, you know, you mentioned rugby and a couple of rugby players. Uh, to me, those guys are the toughest guys on earth, man. I mean, they're playing they're playing tackle football without any pads, and uh, <laughs> I I don't know why the NFL doesn't go after more of those. That's those are the guys I would go after because I mean, you talk about they've got to be tougher than some of the primadonnas we have in the NFL. I mean, why, <laughs> why don't they go more after the rugby players? Well, it's sort of I think in sport around the world, there's there's a bit of a pecking order and a bit of um, uh, I'm better than you that type of feeling, and mm-hmm. I'm. I, I could see the shock on the faces of the American um, sports officials at Rams headquarters back then in Orange County, California, and at uh, Los Angeles Raiders headquarters that they were shocked to see a person from another country kick a ball the way in which 
my client kicked it uh, you know, on the on the gridiron field because he could effectively kick um, 65, 70 metres if he, if, he, if he kicked it a certain way. And Darren Bennett, when he got to San Diego, he, yeah, I remember he him was well. kicking, it, kicking it up into the grandstand, showing them how to you yeah. know, do certain things. So, I mean... Uh, different skills in different countries can can add on, but you're right that that the, the um, there is a rugby is a separate sport to AFL rules footy because in rugby they don't uh, they don't kick the ball anywhere near as what we do. They they only kick it just very rarely, uh, a bit like in your game, and only just comes into it here and there. They're mainly a running game, a bit like yours, where they run down the ground with the ball and try and do a touchdown. So, uh, but they don't kick it to a player who's a wide receiver or anyone who's in a certain position don't try and get that to that next step. But you're right. Some of our players, there's no doubt, and it was mentioned at the time when I had my clients doing the, the kicking part of it, there were comments made by various experts that the Americans should have been looking at some of our blokes to play as, you know, tight ends or wide, wide receivers or be in the, uh, in the middle of the, uh, when the game starts off, the pit, I think as you call it, the yeah. pit. Sure, I'm both playing the lines. Yeah, it just makes sense because there's a lot of toughness there. But you know, their politics is uh, our sports is full of politics as well. Too. There's a lot of us that believe our sports are fixed over here. I get NFL and the NBA especially. I, I I've had Brian Tui on my uh, show before. He he wrote the uh, uh, the fixes in. He beat me to it. That's right, writing a book and uh, got a lot of attention for it. But yeah, we think uh, I don't know how it is again over there, but sports is such a big business here. And, oh yeah, uh, with the point spreads and everything. I mean, just you know, people. I mean, just the last year's Super Bowl. I mean, people. People thought that the you know the referees basically rigged it, or, or actually the championship game was really bad. Where they really, I thought, rigged it for uh, the Chiefs to win. It, it certainly looked like it to me. But uh, you know, I don't trust anything. So that's that's ten. And it all came from the JFK assassination. I got started as a teenager, work on the Mark Lane's uh, Citizens Committee of Inquiries as a teenager. As a teenager uh, and it, that's your baby as well. So how do you, at this point, what do you, uh, the 60th anniversary of JFK is coming up here. It is, you know, this, 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 so, and, we're, and I'm working on a book with uh, two of my friends, uh, William Law and Bob Wilson. And uh, it's going to be a relook at Garrison and New Orleans, especially. And we're hoping to get it out by the 60th anniversary. So uh, how do you feel at this time? What do, you, do you think we'll ever know the truth? And what do you think happened? Um. Well, look, I'm, as you said before, you have a, a problem with trusting, um, you know, anyone or anything. I mean, when you study law, um, that feeling seeps into your psyche because we've got a motto that it's called, um, and it was mentioned in one of your films over there, Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong. It's <laughs> a whole thing. Yeah. And you just... Uh, you just know deep down, just say, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't add up. It's a, it's a matter, if you've got an inquiring mind, some people don't have an inquiring mind and just accept everything that's thrown up because other things in life are more important to them than worrying about if governments are being trustworthy or doing the right thing by the people uh, and an institution um, uh, are uncorrupt or, and, and being honest with themselves and, and with the population at large. And when you see things happen and... There were a sequence of events. There was the Kennedy assassination. There was RFK being assassinated, Martin Luther King and the Vietnam War. The, all of that in the 60s. You just thought, well, how, how can this all happen at once? And just be, as if that's like a runaway train, you know, that there isn't something orchestrating a lot of this. And 
you just get to the uh, the point where you you do get inquisitive if you've got that type of mindset. And I'm I'm like you. I'm very rarely and, and until I can completely see facts and evidence um, and where I'm at, then then everything's up in the air and everything's for debate and is in doubt. And when I saw the article in the, in the university magazine about the magic bullet theory and the Warren Commission thing or whatever, I just thought that that's just garbage. And I'm not even, I've never had military training or anything, but everybody knows a bullet just goes straight. It's shot out of a gun and it just goes in one direction. It doesn't start to do U-turns or <laughs> unless you're talking about those heat-seeking missiles in the first Iraqi war that were going around corners or something. I mean, that wasn't around when JFK got assassinated. So the bullets are going straight. Uh, and you, you, you didn't have to be an expert to realise when you look at, uh, and we know there's a pre to film, uh, things have happened to that that's allegedly been uh, tampered with in various parts, that the sequences were taken out by certain people and it's patched up together again to make it look a certain way. You, you, even with what's left of it, you can see that the damage, the major damage is done to the president from the front, not from the back. You know, the back is peripheral to the the massive damage done from the front and there's been no no one has come out in a government situation to say look we really need to for the soul of our country we need to get to the bottom of this and need to do something about this and and just work it out and i just think that because it it goes very high up the pecking order that no one's going to take that mantle up that's the problem you've got you've got people in higher places who who, who just don't want to do anything with it because you've had how many Presidents and governments that we had since since uh, LBJ was around, you know, and yeah. and the fact that the other fact is that JFK was saddled with having to you know run an election campaign with 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 him with what we know about him at this point in time. In fact, his previous lawyer wrote the book. He also said that the what what people need to get hold of of LBJ's psychiatric reports probably in a in a in a, in a cabinet in his office and probably up on the he said there was a bunch of cabinets on the top of the roof in that law firm that had lbj's name on it or something and no one could open them or go to them or whatever it might be and um, i mean uh, he died at a very young age and uh he was only i think about 64 or 5 and uh, the last few years uh, they said he was uh the psychiatrist was out to the ranch uh, twice a week trying to treat him going through um, a fairly difficult uh, uh, ending uh, to his uh, his life probably had a lot in his mind from everything he'd uh, possibly sure. done. I mean, and he was also named in court cases throughout that period. The Billy Solesto's case yes. and, mm -hmm. uh, was one of them, and other incidents. I mean, everyone in Dallas. I Bobby Baker, of, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Baker. Yeah, the Baker situation at in the house being the the elite bag man for LBJ and Lion Linden and all these nicknames, and oh, then the. Yeah. Ballot box thirty nine when he first made it into the Senate, yeah, yeah. And it was a replaced ballot box and all of this sort of stuff. Is sort of on YouTube, pretty well known to everybody. But everyone just shrugs their shoulders, what and says, "Oh well, good old LBJ," you know. But you know, landslide London. Land, you know, those of you were, I see Richard Frederick Frager's talking about the vote fraud. Obviously. I know there's been vote fraud. I'm just saying at this point, they've been so successful. They don't really need it that much. They'll like they did it with Carrie Lake and Blake Masters in Arizona the last election. They don't need to do it much, but landslide Lyndon, you know, got his name from the ridiculous election in 1952. But, you know, they say he's the one, one of the things he doesn't get credit for. He's, he's the first one to realize that the importance of the dead voting, you know, they say he took his men through a cemetery and was uh, having them copy down a bunch of names on the tombstones. And the men said, 
what is this for? He goes, they got as much right to vote as anybody else. That was his, so that credit <laughs> Lyndon Johnson for that. And ever since then, the dead have been an important voting block. So uh, another reason why. <laughs> well, that's true. So if you think about that, but it's, I don't, again, I don't know. Do people in Australia, do they, uh, are there allegations of vote fraud there? Do you have, do you have electronic voting machines there? Uh, look, I, I don't think we've got any electronic machines that I know of in the Australian Electoral Commission, but there was a, I know that the leader of the UAP um, um, here was, uh, Craig Kelly was um, worried about a bunch of votes that should have gone to the UAP in a seat and did question the um, Australian Electoral Commission over, I think, a small number of votes about what what had happened with them, but I, don't, I haven't heard the end result of that or what became of that. I know it wasn't going to have any effect on the voting UAP only get about five or six percent of the vote, so it wasn't going to have any any big effect right. on the end result of, of of that particular election or seat or whatever it might be. But um, m- machines are always going to be a problem, especially you know if they're you know connected in any way to the internet or web or whatever it might be. That 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 can turn out to be a massive problem. But I always said at the time that all that needed to happen with all that dispute was for an audit of votes, and, and that's what the four senators were arguing for in the the joint sitting, I think, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and everyone were arguing for an audit. If you audit the votes in the in the in the states that are in dispute, if you've got the two parties in dispute, audit those votes, have representatives of both parties there, plus an independent observer, audit them, and then present the figures to uh, Mr. Pence with a 14-day break or whatever it might be, and then you could have had an orderly handover. You wouldn't have had what you had. Now we've got this consternation after the the riot of 6 January, whatever you want to call it, the storming of the, of the house. The and all insurrection. That. I mean, you heard of this, right? I don't know how anyone can say, you know, people are trying to take over a government when they've got nothing more than mobile phones. And it was flags. a mostly peaceful insurrection. They didn't have any guns. I don't know how they thought they were going to do it, but, uh, you know, somehow they were. I want to say in the, in the uh, random things in the chat room, random things 33, Thank your wife very much for getting you masking in the truth for Father's Day. I hope you enjoy it. And Australian Ben, our friend, has a question. And Stephen, apparently you didn't uh, tell us this. Apparently the highlight of your career, this must have been. Uh, wh- what kind of a relationship do you have with the Lingerie Football League? Oh, yes. Sorry. That's what we're interested in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, look, um, my stepdaughter, who was the boxer, she went into um, – into uh, the ladies' gridiron league. So what happened at the time was there was a, an American promoter out here who had the lingerie footy going about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, uh, whereby um, they weren't getting huge crowds, but they, they got a – I think they had some interest from a cable TV network here. I bet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, and they were, um, they were running around. But then the American man unfortunately lost a bit of money and other people lost money, and he – sort of went back to USA and the league was taken over by a bunch of Australian coaches and business people state to state. And uh, then 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 my stepdaughter got involved, uh, Rain. She became involved in it. Uh, she's a New Zealander. And um, uh, other people that came out of women's soccer and women's footy and all the rest of it got involved and they formed the Melbourne Maidens here in Melbourne. And there are other teams around Australia. So eventually they got they did get some contracts. They got one with cable TV contracts with two stations. But my job was to find a, a home ground for them to play on, uh, Bayside here in Victoria, Melbourne, from an area called Port Melbourne, the Port of Melbourne, down to 
possibly Frankston, which is all Bayside on the beach. And I rang up city councils, schools, everything, and I could not get anybody to agree to give them a home ground, including a football ground in the Victorian Football League, which the administrators of that club were very kind, the Sandringham Footy Club, said, yes, we've got no problems with uh, the uh, Melbourne Maidens training on our ground at night time under lights, but you'll have to take it up with the local council and the council were deplorable to deal with. Um, the woman I spoke to told me, she said, there's, there's 150 sports in front of you before you get a look in on any of our territory or whatever. And, and, and then asked me the most foolish question imaginable and just said, I've been told your, your, your team trains in the nude. They're not wearing any uniforms. <laughs> and I said, I don't know who you're talking to, but I said, this is the ladies gridiron league and they design their own uniforms and they're based on the Australian women's hockey uniform of gold and green. And they've got knee pads and shoulder pads. Their bodies are fully covered. Fair enough. They're wearing fairly tight clothing and they look magnificent in it, but yeah. they are not nude, madam. You know, they, they are, they are, uh, fully clothed and professional women athletes. And and uh, that that was the misconception seemed to be. And I, I just couldn't get them a ground. And another team interstate couldn't get a ground either. The whole thing collapsed because of the TV deals were ready to go, but they couldn't operate without home grounds and whatever. And the whole thing just collapsed. But the gym was disappointing because I've still got a box full of files, all the correspondence yeah, and everything. Well, couldn't, couldn't get the thing to... Um, to keep, uh, to keep kicking over, but that, that, that can happen. But it's amazing. Melbourne's meant to be the sports capital of the world and we couldn't we couldn't have a ladies' gridiron team in Melbourne at the top. We would have been one of the first countries. I don't know any other country around the world who's running ladies' gridiron. And it was it would have been us. You've got, I think you've still got the lingerie league in America, but we we, we had our league and then it's just dissipated. It's terrible. Is it? Is it? Because I, I, I would think that I, I haven't heard about it for a while, and I, I would think in the present day America that I don't even know if that'd be allowed unless they started, you know, that was flooded with transgenders or something. Because I, I mean, because <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, you know, the, the, I mean, it's become almost a crime to, to portray a really what used to be good-looking female. I don't know if you, it's that way in Australia, but I've talked about it all the time here. There, they are openly pro made, uh, promoting fatness and even obesity. And I've they're trying to say, have you seen it there as well? I've seen advertisements, yes, we're coming out for different sized women in whether it be modeling <laughs> lingerie or, or other forms yeah. of clothing or whatever. Yeah. And become more prominent. But I don't think there's been a crackdown, as you say, uh, on promoting like female act actresses, actors as they like, you know, the, 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 the modern pseudonym or whatever. But uh, in the sport, look. Anything that promotes, you know, healthy living, and that includes sport, especially for women. I mean, why wouldn't you promote that? And, sure. and to not get that promotion, it, it really left a sour taste in my mouth because I I just didn't think that Melbourne would be like that in, 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 in stopping a sport virtually going ahead and not being able to get to get uh, home ground territory to play on. And uh, it was very disappointing at, at the time. But then again, as I said, the league collapsed, not just because of that, but... I think that it, it had problems trying to raise finance to run any event anyway because, you know, you need money for gear, for um, everything that goes with it in a sport. You've always got costs and outgoings and it became a problem. But it didn't, didn't get enough backing. We didn't have any government backing either. So uh, that was another issue. But uh, disappointing, but what can you do? Look, I think yeah. at some stage down the track, it might someone might cultivate that again, but I think it'd be great to see. But talking cool. about... 
healthy women. They, I tell you what, they were they were. We had we had a tripartite series one night at a netball centre in St Kilda, which um, is is very professionally made by a senior architect, which uh, is used regularly. New Zealand, America, and Australia. So there was an American team that, that came out of women in, in in magnificent outfits, stars and stripes, American outfits, and the Australians and New Zealands in a tripartite series, and that got um, that got uh, was on the cable TV here. Got a bit of. Uh, Airplay and was 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 great to watch. You, you'd never seen ninety of the fittest women you'll ever see that night were uh, just in fantastic physical condition for that competition. Well, what what, what are you? Because uh, we're getting we're running out of time here. What what are you? What are you doing now? What are you concentrating on now? You've you've had such an extraordinary life. Lots of uh, very interesting uh, things going on between sports and JFK and the COVID and everything else. What what are you concentrating on now? What do you, what takes up most of your time? Now. Well, well, look, I'm I'm still doing my law, which I enjoy doing, and um, uh, probably uh, I do a bit of family law, which has become a massive problem in Australia. The uh, breakup of relationships, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. Commercial uh, work, which I enjoy doing, and um, I spit. I, I actually specify. I speak, pick out what cases I, I like to do that I want to do something that is going to get my interest up and get my energy levels going, and stick to that um, with the uh, I have been approached by a of all things a Chinese restaurateur who which wishes me to manage a uh, a Chinese racing syndicate in Melbourne uh, with the the members I think they're in all in Hong Kong as far as I'm aware who want to race bloodstock in I think mainly Melbourne and be part of that whole um, enterprise so uh, that's about to uh, kick off. We've got to go down to a trainer stables in the near future to have a look around and, and have some discussions. And uh, the investors will, will come from China and buy into the bloodstock and all that. So we've got to find a syndicate name and all the rest of it. I mean, that would be of some interest to uh, be able to do that here. Uh, that, that's got my interest up. Uh, uh, I haven't got, apart from that, I haven't got any other uh, big projects. I'm still the UAP member. I'm still interested in helping them out at the next election campaigns coming that'll be up in a couple of years. So I'll be prominent with that again. Uh, whether or not I, I take that further, I haven't made a decision uh, yet, but uh, they seem to be pretty well organised. They're only a small party, but they're well organised. Um, and help out another friend of mine who's in the Liberal Party. So I've got some, you know, the interests are, are still percolating around. Um, whether or not I get back into media is... In the lap of the gods, I have got a um, corporate sponsor who wants to, me to do a podcast on mainly sporting stuff, but I said I'd like to incorporate uh, sport with some a political segment as well as the sport and a bit of current affairs stuff to have it all-encompassing, a bit like how we've done today, mm -hmm. uh, to have an all-encompassing type of program or whatever. So we're, we're, we're thinking about kicking that off. That, that, that would probably be, if that got off the ground, I'd be doing that once a week or once a fortnight, I'd be happy happy doing that. So, uh, but look, yeah. I'm you know if there's a project out there that I'm keen on and it looks like it's got some some interest in it, I'd certainly uh, you know jump in and, and have a crack at it, sort of thing. Because I'm 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 not a retirement type person. I'm 68, so I'm not sort of in the position where I'm thinking, oh gee whiz, you know I've only got a year left or two years or something like that. I mean, Robert Morgenthau, the former Attorney General of New York, worked till he was 92, I think. And he also worked at JFK, and he, when he went back into law, he, they said they nearly had to carry him out of the law firm at 92 years of age and say, you need to have a rest. You know? yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's, hopefully you get to do that too. So when you're when you're practicing law, uh, and you said family law, do you see? And I write a lot about American dysfunction. Do you see the same kind of family dysfunction over there? We have awful family dysfunction in America. Oh, yeah, look, it's it's just a massive problem because it's the unfortunate thing is some people have children they're probably not capable of looking after or being able to raise properly or have the the um, the, the infrastructure to raise them properly if they're not working consistently, not having the economics, not being able to provide a good education, which is what I was hoping back to the Republican thing, that they would be more in line with trying to get that going. But uh, mm -hmm. it is a problem. In, in, you've got to have um, an infrastructure for children. They've got to have a reasonable education and, and, and some hope of being able to make something of their lives uh, and not just end up on the street uh, like you see in some, you know, US cities. I mean, we don't have sort of gangs hanging around the streets uh, graffiti and causing trouble. I mean, you get a few people going around spraying the odd wall, but it's not a massive problem here like that. Uh, out in the suburbs, there'd be, that'd be a bit more prominent, not in inner city Melbourne. But you just like to see opportunities that, that, that could be given, and, and you can't do that. If you end up having three or four or five children and you haven't got infrastructure, you're, you're going to be up against it people are going to be starving and won't get a good education and before you know it, they're in crime. So the, the whole thing is you just want to keep people out of crime and, and stay out of trouble um, that uh, and, and working for crime gangs and things of that nature, which to a certain degree in some countries around the world, just about out of hand, you would tend to think. You just don't like to see that. So, yeah, there is dysfunction, a lot of dysfunction at times by, by those sort of aspects that affect relationships and that but people don't think sometimes before they jump into a situation they don't think into the future or ahead about what could go wrong murphy's law right well finally i have to ask you because you live in the land down under uh we have uh, a lot of flat earth fans on our show so are, are you hanging from your feet on the how does that work <laughs> That's a, on the land down under, are you guys hanging from your feet? How does the, the flat earthers ask me that all the time? I, I have to ask you. <laughs> We're not hanging from our feet. That's for sure. I mean, that'd be a difficult task. Although I've got a balcony out there, I could probably do it. But um, uh, no, no it's, look, it's land down under, made famous by that song by Men at Work, of course. Yes. But that's another thing is that uh, although we're miles away from everybody else, our web. Uh, uh, Melbourne in particular is the effectively the music capital of Australia. And we've had, uh, I've been to seven out of 10 Rolling Stones concerts since 1973. Wow. I saw Led Zeppelin in 1972 at a place called Kuyong Tennis, where they used to have the Australian Open before the Rod Laver Arena came along. Uh, we, we get, we've had all the top performers. I never saw Jimi Hendrix, of course, because he passed on before he, he, he got ever, ever got to Australia. But I've seen just about everybody I wanted to see has been out here at least once along the journey. And we do get, there's still people touring, people I don't see, but people like Pink and those sort of Taylor Swift's coming out and various other performers have, have all got concert tours booked. They just love coming here. So, mm -hmm. and sure. they keep doing it. You know, we're back in 1974, Frank Sinatra did three concerts at uh, the old Festival Hall, which is a boxing venue, you know, when, Wow. Uh, way back when, when he had that big trouble with the uh, Australian Union movement, when he uh, criticised some Australian journalists from the stage, mm -hmm. and they ended up banning his um, his plane from being refuelled at uh, Essendon Airport to get around the countryside to do his other concerts. It was quite quite amusing at the time. Yeah, but, uh, I, 
We're almost out of time. Tony, if you want to jump in, if you have any questions or any comments at the end of the show, my producer, otherwise we'll get ready uh, to, I'm going to give you a chance to uh, close with whatever you want. Say anything you want to say, if you have any links to give out or people, anything you're trying to promote. Anything you wanted that you have to promote, uh, Stephen, or any links or anything? Oh, well, yeah, sorry. I, I thought you yeah, were Tony, I, Tony's probably busy with somebody, I guess. I, I, if, I'll, I'll end the show if he doesn't, but uh, go ahead. Oh, well, look, at this point in time, I'd just, I just love to see, um, you know, your country uh, uh, at this point uh, be able to get itself sort of back on its feet. And, and it's going to be yeah. difficult, but you, you just hope. Look, I, I, I still hope that at the next presidential election, that if, if it's not Trump, I hope Trump could run with someone like RFK, but if he can't, I'd be quite happy if he got Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Geitz as his running partner. Well, knowing or- Trump, he'll pick he'd pick Lindsey Graham as his running mate. I mean, that's just what he it's <laughs> what he does all the time. <laughs> if he if he takes Graham, that, that that's not going to help. I don't. No, think I don't think so. I see Tony's there. Tony, do you have any questions for Stephen? No, I mean, it's just a great show. There's, there's a lot to, to take in. I mean, you guys covered so much. And uh, I mean, we're, we're right here at the end. So I hate to tie it up and go past our, our time limit. Yeah, I got you. That's cool. I just, I just wanted you to get a chance and you can close us with the music. Stephen, again, so there's no links or anything you want to promote. Uh, I just want to give you the last word and then we'll. No, but anyone who wants to, I've got a website, stephenjpeak.com.au, which has got a bit of background stuff on it and shows what I've done a bit. And, um, Absolutely. Uh, a few other sporting and uh, related issues. So, uh, you know, people can, can have a look at that. But uh, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me about anything, I'm happy to talk to them. You know, if they've uh, got any ideas or anything they're interested in that I'm doing here in Australia or whatever, well, give us a ring or send us an email or uh, whatever it might be. It's all there. Well, you're a very, very interesting guy. And I want to thank uh, Australian Ben for uh, mentioning you to me, uh, Stephen. Great. Thanks for thanks for being with us. I want to tell everybody, uh, uh, Australian Ben, two other of my friends from Australia, Australian Ben and Reptile Hybrid, are going to be hosting a Twitter Spaces Sunday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. I don't know what time that'll be in Australia. Probably a hard, horrible time. But uh, <laughs> 9 p.m. Eastern here. Uh, so please catch me there. I'm going to be their special guest. And uh, again, thanks so much, Stephen. Fascinating guy. And I would thanks everybody for listening to I protest. We'll be here next. And hopefully remember next week, hopefully we'll have YouTube back. If we can stop YouTube from suspending me again. Thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Good on you, Donna. I'm very happy to be here. Very kind of you to invite me on. Thank you, sir. Take care. Thanks everyone. All the best. Take care.